Hi, I'm Michael. I'm an overacting improv artist that wishes he was probably even close to as good as this next, uh, this next interviewer that I have on today. I'm a small business owner. I'm hitting my midlife crisis and I'm way insecure and extremely neurotic. I am a TV host and your host right now for what we call the Second Scene Podcast, a Dweebs Global production, where we interview people you know about things that they're not necessarily known for. So I'm here today with Andrea Jones-Roy, who is a professor at NYU teaching data science for everyone, has a PhD in political science, but whose second scene is a stand-up comedian and circus performer. So quite the extremes there. Have you always been a performer? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think so. I think starting in like middle school, my friends and I would put on plays and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, for better or worse, I think I've always demanded that people watch me prance around. <laughs> so yes, yes, I think so. I guess when you're giving lectures, that's kind of a performance. You know, I, it is and it isn't. And I have to actually remind myself that students are not audience members because otherwise I get really depressed because they look so bored most of the time, right? <laughs> I mean, they, I feel like I, uh, I sometimes try too hard to uh, elicit responses from students who are like, it's three in the afternoon and we're tired and we don't care about variables as much as you do. But, uh, but it is a kind of performing, 100% a kind of performing. And I think of my, uh, my teaching clothes where I wear you know, a button down shirt and a blazer is as much a costume as, as anything else you might put on. So I think that's fair. Gotcha. Do you try to bring yeah. your stand up into your teaching at all? Do you, do you try to throw some jokes in there? It's just a... Uh... It never, the few times it doesn't go well. The only things that are funny in my class are like if I just make a mistake or like, it's never, it's always students laughing at me, not with me typically. It's, it's really, every now and again, I'll try. I'll be like, this will be hilarious if I have like a graphic and it never works. Uh, the, it does go the other way though. I have... Um, uh, so I teach at NYU and it's right in Greenwich Village, which is where a lot of the comedy clubs are. And so I'll go from a lecture, uh, kill a couple of hours and then go to a comedy club and more or less like have an airing of grievances about what just happened in my lecture uh, in the comedy club, which I think, honestly, I'm not even sure comedy audiences care about that. But uh, uh, that's the connection more often. You use it as your outlet. You, yes. <laughs> you, yes. You, they are all your therapists in the audience. And you get yes, to... indeed. Yes, it's a bunch of, um, back when we could travel, it would typically be a bunch of tourists from either the middle of the US or you know Europe or wherever. And they're just like, why is this person so angry about teaching? <laughs> it's kind of how it goes. But I will say that you know many audience members have been college students. And so sometimes I think they appreciate hearing the other side where the professor is like, everyone's asleep. Why are they even here? And that kind of thing. So. Sometimes it works for that reason. Well, you must enjoy teaching to an extent if that's what you do. It's uh, and, and I know I've read about you and your whole your whole thing is to make data science accessible and fun yes. for the masses and to get us into it. I, you'd actually been recommended to us because uh, somebody had seen you at the Computational Social Science Society of the Americas. Yes, the CSSSA or something like that. Yes, yes. Uh, a great organization. Uh, uh, computational social sciences are awesome. And I think uh, that that particular occasion, I was giving a talk on how to share the good news about social science, computational social science, data science with non-scientific audiences, which indeed is, is more or less what I try to get up to in a ver variety of, of forums, for sure. 
Okay, I'm totally yeah. novice to all this. I, I okay. know what that means. What is what is computational social science? Right. So, uh, so probably it's worth backing up and saying. So, social science. Most people know uh, or have some idea of social science. Uh, that's political science, which, as you said at the opening, is is my background. Uh, economics, psychology, sociology, anthropology. Uh, some people start to include things like history and then people get really angry about whether it's humanities or social science. So we'll set that aside for now. But generally it's, you know, trying to understand people using data and scientific methods and forming theories and testing hypotheses and all of that. And computational social science, basically, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but it basically means, okay, how can we get computers to help us understand these things? And more often than not, or at least the area that I spend time thinking about is using computers to simulate social settings. So you say, okay, how is a super hypothetically, how would a disease spread through a society if people have such and such sets of networks and proclivities to listen to the government? You know, totally hypothetically. Yeah, uh, you can't imagine that happening. No, exactly. So if you can wrap your mind around this strange idea, uh, you could then imagine using a computer to simulate how that might go. Um, and so computational social science is largely about those sorts of simulations. Um, which can be overlapping with more like statistical simulations, but not necessarily. You can kind of do what we call agent-based modeling, where instead of having variables and coefficients, you have basically simulated little people or agents or actors um, who do things and you see what happens. So it's much, uh, it's some cutting edge uh, social science that is definitely not mainstream uh, for most folks yet. Got you. Yeah. Um, I can't, I, I, the way I picture it, okay, so you program a little character on the screen to yeah. walk around in circles and he has a 10% <laughs> chance of making a left turn instead of a right turn. Exactly, or, yeah. So you just have like thousands of those going. Yes. In my head, I imagine it like, of course I know what's going to happen because I programmed it, but I, that's not true. I'm, I'm guessing that's why we need it. Right. And uh, it's almost as though you've heard from one of my uh, PhD advisors. His name is Robert Axelrod. And he was one of the early uh, social scientists to really adopt computational modeling back in like the 80s and 90s. Um, and he often used to describe that for these models, these agent-based models, that sometimes, yeah, you know what's going to happen. Um, but a lot of times you don't. And of course, you're interested in the ones that surprise you. And he estimated that in his life, he probably 60% of the time correctly anticipated what his models were going to do. And so sometimes that's good news. It, it validates our intuitions. Yeah, if I have a model where only 10% of the time everyone turns left and the rest of the time they turn right, I can kind of think of the mess that it will generate, but add one more rule and it suddenly gets super complicated and you can't necessarily know what's gonna happen. Um, weirdly, so, so, so computational social science is not that mainstream, it, as far as I know, maybe things have changed, within like political science, like it's definitely done, I'm interested in it, but mainstream political science is still like experiments, statistics, things like that. Uh, weirdly, the US government, I think I can say this, the US government is very into computational social sciences. <laughs> They're zooming in right now on our conversation. Um, they do a lot of stuff in defense. I've seen models of like terrorism and like responses to terrorism and planning for big events and what do people do and where can we put checkpoints and those sorts of simulations, um, military strategy, that kind of stuff. Uh, I know of some computational social scientists who've gotten some pretty big research grants from the government. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's to a point now where they've actually seen the reality of these, of these programs. Yeah. Uh, 
One of the things that I like talking about with my students in data science is when we do build a model, whether it's statistical or whether it's one of these agent-based models, is are we trying to model something or are we trying to simulate something? And the military is definitely more interested, as far as I know, in simulating, which is we have mountains of data and we can specify every single possible act action that someone in a community could take. And we want to, you know, predict tomorrow what's going to happen or, or under these conditions, what's likely to happen, as opposed to a model, which is like, let's just see which variable tends to matter the most. And we only have like a handful. One of the more recent simulations I saw, I guess this was maybe one or two years old, um, was a presentation at the Santa Fe Institute, which does a lot of thinking like this. Um, and they did a model of what were the right checkpoints to put in front of like a concert venue or what were the biggest inputs to prevent a terrorist attack um, for a hypothesized like social gathering place. And basically the model was like, oh, the best thing you can do on the day of a concert if you're worried about terrorism is have it rain because no one will ever show up if it rains. Like they modeled the weather and it's like, all right, I don't know what to do with that from a national security standpoint other than seed clouds. But, uh, you know, there's a surprising outcome for you, I guess. Does it ever have to do with, uh, with positive events? Mm, <laughs> it's like you know, war, disease, but is there ever, you know, how do we get cotton candy in the most hands in the next 20 minutes? Or? I, that's a great question. Uh, I, and I actually know someone in Shanghai who can help you out with that uh, in particular. Uh, that's a very good question. And it's also a question that my data science students have asked where they're like, how come everything we talk about is depressing? Because we do the same thing. We have data on this, we have data on that, and it's all just devastating stuff. Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, I take your point, and I think more social sciences maybe should adopt what psychology did you know, a couple of decades ago when they were like, let's stop worrying about, uh, well, focusing only on like mental illness and abnormal psychology and whatever else you want to call it. And they were like, let's talk about positive psychology, what makes people happy. And people really started this like whole research agenda around that. I think we could probably stand for a bit more of that in other areas. There is an area of political science in, in international relations that does focus on peace and cooperation. But I am too miserable and I focused on war, so I can't help you there. <laughs> yeah. You seem so not miserable. <laughs> it's all a big act. <laughs> yeah. You also work for uh, 538. Does the computational science come into play there or is mm. it totally different? Right. So I'm, I, I was at 538 for how long? Like a year and a half um, in the lead up to their midterm, the 2018 midterm election. So I helped a lot um, with the data that goes into some of their poll predictions. Um, they were not excited about computational social science, I have to say. I pitched a couple of stories using that. And I forget now what I wanted to model. It was something maybe in like the polarization vein. There's some interesting work out there with people using um, modeling polarization and seeing what you can do to get people to talk to one another, that sort of thing. Um, and they were not having it. They basically raised the same concern that a lot of people who are social scientists, but not computational social scientists raise, which is kind of what you said at the beginning, which is if I built the model and I built the rules, why wouldn't I just be modeling what I think is gonna happen and how is this science, right? Mm -hmm. um, like I'm just playing God here. So what's interesting about that? Um, and the nuance of, well, 60% of the time you might know, or they, we don't really know, and it's kind of game theoretic, but large, and they were like, our audiences will not be interested in that. So, so alas, uh, no such luck. 
Yeah, I, I, I used to be a computer programmer. And anytime, oh, okay. Anytime my programmer didn't do something that I, or my program didn't do something I expected, it was because I put an error in there of some sort. Right, so. right. So this, yeah, it requires, so I'm not trained, don't tell my students, some of they probably can tell already from my crappy code, but I'm not trained as a computer scientist. So I've definitely very much like self-taught ad hoc computer science in order to do the things I want to do. So maybe I have less of a, a Puritan view about <laughs> programs doing what I want. But this is the, that's the spirit of, have you heard of the, um, the program called Game of Life? No, it's not actually a game. I mean, it's kind of fun, but it's it's a simulation also from several decades ago, where basically it's just a couple of like uh, artificial little bots who are meant to simulate like cells in an ecosystem or something like that. And you give them simple rules like replicate if you run into another one like you or move to the left if there are three of you going the other way. And basically it creates what computational social scientists and complexity scientists call emergence. And so it's a computer program that you put in basic rules and a basic introductory format. And then it creates all these like crazy patterns and people were very excited that they had simulated the origin of life on earth just using a computer program. And the idea here is exactly what you were describing, which is we knew exactly what the rules were. We knew exactly what the starting point was, but somehow this program resulted in all these crazy things that we didn't imagine. It's worth, if you just Google game of life, it's like very basic, but extremely cool. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, the graphics will make Pac-Man look cutting edge, but, uh, but it's very cool. Or even if you don't want to do that, you can just find some YouTube videos of Game of Life and it's, it's pretty awesome. That's fascinating though, the programming, it's, I mean, that long ago programming was so simple that they could yes. create that. <laughs> so you teach at NYU right now. Yeah. Um, where else have you teached? I know you, you were teaching in China for a while. I was. So I uh, was at NYU's Shanghai campus for three years. So my dissertation was on uh, censorship in China. And, uh, and so I was uh, able to be at the NYU Shanghai campus um, right when they first opened, which was cool. So NYU is slowly taking over the world for better or worse. We can have some a separate conversation about <laughs> colonialism and a couple of other problematic things. But it was very cool to open a brand new university in China. Um, and so I was there from 2013 to 16, uh, and I founded their interdisciplinary major in quantitative social science uh, while I was out there as well. And if you've ever tried to get permission from the Chinese government to teach social science, Western social science, mind you, um, you'll have a hard time, <laughs> basically. So how did you do that? And what uh, did you have to agree to teach and not so teach? As far as I know, I didn't agree to teach or not teach anything, but uh, that may have changed since I was there. But it turns out the secret is you do have to have a counterpart who basically has connections with the Chinese government and like would went to represent, like I had to petition NYU New York and the state of New York to recognize it because the degree is granted out of, out of New York as well as they get two degrees, one out of China and one out of New York. So I was in charge of the US side, which makes sense. And then I did have a counterpart who basically went to the Ministry of Education and had to petition to get the major approved. And one of the big challenges was that there is no word. They have a list of, uh, in, in China, they have a list of possible majors that any university can, can possibly adopt. Uh, and political science wasn't on there and social science wasn't on there as its own major. So they were like, do you mean law? do you mean policy? Do you mean psychology? And I'd be like, no, none of those. And they're like business. And, it, and I forget where we ultimately landed. It might've been within policy, which is not accurate. Um, but yeah, they didn't even have like the word for it. So that was a challenge. Did you, do you speak Chinese or was it all? I do. Okay. So, so, so my Chinese is not good enough to, 
to argue my case in front of the Ministry of Education, but, uh, but I do speak Chinese well enough to like get around. Um, so I studied Chinese in college and then uh, for my dissertation used written Chinese um, and translated, but I didn't really speak it. Uh, so it got pretty rusty. And then when I moved to Shanghai, I got a job in the evenings at a Chinese nightclub, a circus themed. It was like half Chinese, half British, but uh, I was the only cast member that spoke like any Mandarin. So I was the de facto translator backstage between our half Chinese cast and our half British cast. And so my spoken Chinese got a lot better, but my vocabulary got a lot weirder. And so now I can, now I actually can talk about like cotton candy, <laughs> things like that. How do you say cotton candy in Chinese? Now I knew you were going to ask me and I think I've forgotten it. Um, you put it out there. I know, I know. There's, there's a word, there's bao mi hua, which is popcorn. And I'm blanking on cotton candy. It's like something like something tangxian, which is sugar string. But there's another word in front of it that I'm blanking on. Let me come back to you on that. Yeah. I was going to hold off on the, on the acting and performing part. Yeah. You just talked about working in some type of nightclub in yes. China. And I, I'm sure like myself, most people listening have no idea what <laughs> that would be like. Yeah. It was, uh, it was awesome, I have to say. Um, very unexpected for me. Um, and a very, very weird view into Shanghai's like rapidly changing uh, culture that was also becoming rapidly westernized and a lot of people were becoming very wealthy at the time. So, I mean, it was only a handful of years ago, but a lot has changed. So. So I did dance uh, growing up. And then when I got to grad school, I was like, I'm leaving all that behind. I got to focus and be serious. And then I sort of went insane. And so I was like, I better move again to keep myself from losing my mind. And so I got uh, into synchronized swimming at Michigan. And then I got into figure skating and then I did some yoga. And then finally I found this circus studio in Detroit that taught like trapeze and aerial silks and stuff like that. And so that kind of really resonated with me. And so I did it through grad school just to have like a balance for my self-esteem and, you know, just some kind of outlet. Where do you, do, I'm sorry, where do you learn this? Where, 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 where do you go to be taught? Uh, usually there's a, a warehouse at the outskirts of pretty much any city these days in the United States. So actually the Trapeze School New, uh, Trapeze School New York has a DC location that's quite good. Uh, I, I imagine they're closed now, though they might have an outdoor rig. It's right by the, um, like the National Stadium, like on the river. It's very okay. cool. Yeah, anyway, check it out in your spare time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not in a pandemic. Um, but this particular place, uh, it was called the Detroit Fly House. Uh, and it really was just like this abandoned warehouse that a handful of people who, I don't know how they originally learned how to do this, um, but were trapeze artists and circus performers and things like that. So they started a school. And so I would go and train there um, and learn how to do kind of cool tricks and stuff like that. Um, and then I got a job teaching at Carnegie Mellon and used to still go back on the weekends to train at the Detroit Fly House. And then at Carnegie Mellon, they got mad at me because they were like, you're not being a serious scholar. Stop it. <laughs> so that, so really? I had to kind of stop. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, and then I got a job at NYU Shanghai. And one of the reasons I accepted it was to get away from the circus because I was like, I, I was like, Carnegie Mellon is right. I truly need to focus and like be an adult and all these things. And you, you know, in China, they have like a huge circus uh, uh, history. It's a very awesome circus culture, but you have to be, you know, born into a circus family. You train, you know, you can think of like the, the sort of acrobatics that you see um, in various like Chinese opera performances and stuff like that. Um, 
and I am not at that level. So I was like, perfect, I'll be able to leave this all behind. And then within a month of my arriving in Shanghai, they announced this opening of this circus-themed nightclub. And they, it's, as I said, it's a, it's a British company called Cirque Le Soir, and they were opening a branch. It's, there's a branch in London. They were opening a branch in Shanghai, and they were actively recruiting both Chinese and international performers because they wanted this, like, mix. And so I was like, well, obviously, <laughs> I'm going to have to do that. Just to cut back real quick, why did yeah. I'm, I'm still fascinated with the Carnegie Mellon? Like, how did they even Please. know you were doing this? And then how did well, it affect your teaching? So uh, they knew I was doing it because of Facebook. Hooray. This was simpler times when everyone was pretty much on Facebook and there wasn't much in the way of like Instagram or Twitter. And I was, I made a pretty deliberate choice to not like, you know, some people would create like professional profiles or like, you know, really put up maximum, you know, privacy settings and that sort of thing. And I've never been very good about doing that sort of thing. I also didn't imagine it would be a problem until they said something. Um, but all it was, it wasn't anything scandalous. All it was, was one of the things that the studio that I was going to in Detroit would do to, I think increase their own kind of word of mouth marketing was they had a, a guy there, uh, kind of a friend of the community who would take photos if you were in a class and you were doing a cool pose. So like every week, like one or two pictures of me just like hanging from a thing, like smiling, like very neutral, fun, you know, wholesome stuff mm -hmm. uh, would show up on Facebook. And someone apparently, a colleague of mine at Carnegie Mellon noticed it and they apparently like almost didn't hire me because of it. And then there was like some, some like concerns that I wasn't serious. My students never said anything about it. Um, I never heard anything from anyone other than my kind of direct supervisor who relayed this concern and was like, why aren't you taking this seriously? So, wow. you would so from then on, I just pretended not to go. Don't tell them I said that. Like <laughs> I then I was like, okay, I'll, I see what game we're playing. And I just like changed my settings and I would just pretend I was in Pittsburgh when I wasn't and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, so you got you you tried out and you made it into this club. Yes, I'm forgetting the names of it, and I'm sure I can't pronounce them anyway. But that's fine. Yeah, yeah. So, so what happens and what's that like? I don't know. Paint me a picture of. Yeah. So, uh, so I had never. So it's it's uh, it's a nightclub. Um, it's long since shut down now, unfortunately. But uh, but it was a nightclub. It's still open in London. So if anyone is in London, they can go to Cirque du Um and and hang out it's it's very weird so it's a it's a, here's your picture uh shanghai is is a city divided by a big river as is true for most cities and there's a very fancy riverfront area with like old architecture and it's very cool uh it was in one of those buildings overlooking the river and so you go up this elevator and then you go into the club through these like dark stairwell into this like cavernous nightclub basically and it's this long oblong place and in the middle, there was a big stage with like a kind of walkway and a big platform. And the club was basically centered around this stage. And then in addition to the main stage, there were a couple of smaller podiums where you would do kind of like mini shows. And then sometimes we would do like very coyote ugly style shows like on the bar itself. Uh, and so I was trained as a, as a trapeze artist mostly. And I do lira, which is aerial hoop, and I do silks. And so I showed up and said, like, I'll be your aerialist if you want me to. Uh, and they were like, great, your audition is to perform on our opening weekend. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I basically just showed up. They had this amazing makeup artist who did this cool thing. And I was wearing this kind of like red and gold circus thing with a little red hat. Like it was all very cheesy. And then they're like, okay, get on the lira and we're going to play our intro music, which is this like cheesy circus music. Uh, and our DJ will just like 
has a button that will just like bring the lira onto the main stage and then just improvise an act. And then when we decide you're done, we'll take you off. So I didn't know how long it was going to be. Like, I didn't know what was going on. And so uh, the circus music starts, all the other performers, there's about tw 12 other performers have like sparklers and they like circled me on this lira. And then the lira goes out and I pranced around a whole bunch. Uh, and then they drive me back <laughs> basically. Just yeah. ad-libbed it or you had a performance planned? I had jotted down some notes like of moves that I remembered and uh, just did those in that order. Um, I was, this is maybe not PG enough, but I was wearing a pasty. It was the first time I'd ever worn a pasty in my whole life and it fell off on stage. And oh. I was convinced that I was going to get like arrested and the club shut down, but no one seemed to care. No, uh, wardrobe malfunction. Yeah. It didn't yeah. ruin your career like it did. Janet Jackson? Or? Yeah, it wasn't quite as bad as Janet Jackson. So, uh, so that was okay. And from then on, I was like, oh, I need a lot more tape than I realized. <laughs> so, but I, but you know, after that, they were like, you're in, this is amazing. And I'm like, okay. Um, and I mean, I was not trained as a nightclub performer. And so there were things, you know, some often, so they trained me to use fire. Um, so I learned fire eating and body burning and like manipulation and stuff like that. So I would do a lot of shows doing that. And they taught me bed of nails. Uh, and it turns out the trick for bed of nails is it just hurts a lot. That's the whole trick. <laughs> like, I was like, what's the secret? They're not real nails. They're this, they're that. You're spreading out and they're like, no, it just hurts. Like literally the guy who taught me was like, here's all you need to know. And I was like, okay. He was like, just remember when you're doing it, it's just pain. And I was like, that sucks. That's, <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> I'm not excited about that. There's no, there's no threat that a thousand nails will go into you. I guess they're, they're spaced a certain way that. Yeah, there's, there's like, especially this bed of nails was, was apparently not a good one. So the nails were like uneven and spread out in a weird way. So it's kind of horrible. I'm picturing, uh, I'm forgetting the director's name, Edward Scissorhands. Mm, yeah, very like that. Is it? Okay. I know what you're talking about. That kind of like, uh, what is that? But that kind of aesthetic is definitely the, uh, what oh, you're going for. That's so cool. I want to yeah. go check it out. I want to be a part of that. That sounds awesome. It's, it's awesome. And, and yeah, it does still exist in London. So you can get a taste of it. Um, it's very cool. Do you still do the fire breathing? I do. I, you know, the pandemic isn't great for fire uh, performances because it's not really, uh, you need a pretty big indoor space. But I did do one Zoom show where I, I have fire fans, which are awesome. So they're like seven huge wicks on each hand and you can kind of like wave it. It's awesome. Um, I did that on my roof for a Zoom show back in like May. And that was pretty cool. But it's one of those where it's like, I'm very lucky the neighbors didn't call the fire department and or I didn't set off some kind of alarm. So I can't push my luck on that. Yeah, if you can't put a grill out on the balcony in New York, I'm exactly. guessing, yeah. Exactly. What's the most yeah. dangerous performance you do? Hmm, so I think the fire probably looks more dangerous and in some ways if it goes wrong, but I actually think the more dangerous is trapeze or like any aerial where you're high up and not all venues um, are able to provide like, or willing to put down like mats and things like that. So I am probably, I shouldn't say this, but I'm ashamed to admit that I have done a fair number of performances where there's not like mats underneath. And it's like, I think if I fell, it would be really bad. Like I'm not super, super high. It's not like flying trapeze where you absolutely need a net, like that kind of thing. But it's like high enough that you could probably really hurt yourself if you, you have some speed, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I tried it once, and I just remember how difficult it was to hold on. Yeah. I guess the, the, the force of your body, the weight, 
becomes many times what your actual weight is while you're yeah. through. Yeah. And so I do something a lot. Uh, my favorite version is, is what's called dance trapeze, where instead of swinging back and forth, you're on a single point that's on a spinner. And so there's a, you're basically just like constantly spinning and that will mess up like moves that you can do while not spinning become much more challenging when you are spinning and you can, you know, time it poorly. Uh, and just like a figure skater, when they like bring their arms in, you like, like be in mid performance and be like, I am spinning way too fast. <laughs> and like, I don't know how to get out of this. So, uh, okay. yeah. So yeah. So people tend to, to worry a lot more about the fire and certainly that can be very dangerous, but I actually, I personally get more nervous if it's, if I'm working at heights. Yeah, I would, I would as well. Yeah. I can see that being more dangerous. Yeah. Uh, one time, one time I did fire on a trapeze at Cirque and very quickly was like, Jesus Christ, what was I thinking? I can't do that. <laughs> Cause like I burned, it was just a tiny bit of fire, but I burned my leg and I was wearing these latex pants and it totally like, melted into my skin. It was really horrible. But then I was like, what was I thinking? All you need to do is just burn the rope a little and it's over. It was very dumb. And I was not high up at all. I was just sitting on it. I was kind of like, a, oh, this will look cool. Like I could have jumped off and I was on the ground, but I, it, it dissuaded me from doing that at any other height, which I think is good. There you go. I'm glad it scared you at a time. Yes. <laughs> yes. Through. Yes. Yes, for sure. So after your time um, performing in the nightclub in China, where did you, where did you go next for performing? How'd you, how'd you get that outlet? Yeah, so uh, so the club shut down about after about two years. Uh, basically, I think it might have in the end been a front for like a money laundering thing and uh, run by some kind of like Taiwanese mafia. You didn't hear that from me, but either way, uh, it lost its popularity and uh, we shut down, which was too bad because it was a really nice community. And then I was, uh, uh, a couple of us sort of banded together and we became like a freelance touring act around China. And so I performed in like, like Chengdu and Beijing and a couple of other cities. And then I moved back to New York uh, in part because uh, I, I was thinking that uh, a traditional academic path wasn't right for me. So being at NYU Shanghai made less sense as, uh, as I kind of got more interested in work outside of academia. And I was doing comedy more at the time. I started doing stand-up when I was in Shanghai as well. Um, and, I, and, you know, New York is one of the places where you go if you want to do comedy more seriously. Um, I, there's also a lot of great training facilities in, in New York for circus. And so I moved to New York, uh, quit my academic job um, and moved here with like no plan whatsoever. And so until the pandemic was performing quite regularly at comedy clubs around here and uh, performing on Saturdays at this venue near Coney Island called the Romanoff, which is this like massive event space uh, run by Russian families for Russian communities who are celebrating like weddings and anniversaries and birthdays and stuff like that. And it was like this like wild, like trip in time and place to like Russia of 50 years ago. And we would have, they would have these like singers and dancing and then they would have a cabaret in the middle and I would be one of the acts, either trapeze or fire. Um, so you also do stand up comedy and you also do improv. You were, you were part, you, you trained with the Upright Citizens Brigade? I did. So I took classes at, at UCB in New York um, for a long time uh, and uh, performed. I just had like an indie team. We were called Day Stallion. 
Uh, it's the opposite of a nightmare, get it? Oh, good. Uh, and we just did, you know, the sort of uh, New York City underground indie venue type uh, scenes. And we did some shows in Boston, we did some shows in DC, um, and it was a lot of fun. And then um, I sort of stopped doing improv as I picked up more and more circus when I was in my later years of grad school. But then when I moved to Shanghai, there actually was a pretty um, vibrant improv scene, actually. Um, a mix of uh, uh, international and, and Chinese um, uh, improvisers. Our group was English only, but one, just because our language skills weren't up to snuff. But there was another group that would do bilingual shows, which was very cool. Oh, wow. Um, and so that got me back into improv, which is just something that I've always enjoyed. But I've never been that good at it. I kind of play like straight man type stuff and like don't really do characters very well. And always, the reason I originally got into improv, I'm curious to hear about your, how, what led you to it, um, was that I really wanted to be involved in comedy, but I was too nervous to do stand-up. Because like, at least improv, if it goes wrong, there's like seven other people you can blame for like, you know, it wasn't just me. Whereas stand-up, you're like, oh, I just definitely suck, right? And so I was too afraid to do it. Uh, and then, but in Shanghai, the improv scene and the stand-up scene like overlap a whole bunch. So in New York, at least, I don't know about DC, in New York, improvisers and stand-up comedians like do not really interact and there's very little overlap in terms of people who do both. Um, whereas in Shanghai, that wasn't the case. And so a number of my improv teammates also did stand-up and I once confessed I wanted to try and they're like, well, now you have to. And they basically forced me to do it. Um, and it was terrifying and it was continued to be terrifying for about two years, but I do really like it and I do think I'm better at it than I am at improv. Yeah, I can't yeah. imagine getting on there with just the microphone and uh, trying to make people laugh. It's That's... pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest thing is like, and this maybe just sounds cliche, is you just have to fail so many times that you stop caring if you fail or at least stop caring that much. But it's very much easier said than done. So I did it like five times. And the first one was okay, because the first time you're like, I like stacked the room with my friends and I just told a circus story and it was all kind of okay. Mm -hmm. And then the second time I just totally sucked. And the third time it was even worse. And the fourth time it was like, just ram, it was horrible. And by the fifth time I was like, well, I'm done. And I quit for a year and I didn't, I just did improv and I didn't do stand up anymore. And it just bothered me so much that I had like given up on it that I went back out of just fury with myself. <laughs> <laughs> but unlike improv, it's like the lows are lower, but the highs, I think, are higher. Because when you do do well, you're just like, you're like, it was all me. Like, it's like you feel very, very good about yourself. Like, I think I'm like in withdrawal from that high, that high, to be honest with you. I don't know about how you are. I'm so looking forward to getting back out there. We're doing, I have my troupe called Your Favorite Cookie. And we're yes. doing, we're doing something called POTUS Among Us right now, where we have one of our one of our uh, members is running for POTUS Among Us, like the president, and it's all you know, fake. His whole, his, his whole running uh, thing is that we want to be less grumpy. And one of the ways <laughs> we're going to be less grumpy is we're going to kill daylight savings time. So that's Oh, like, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> all makes sense. This is a campaign I can get behind. Yes, indeed. <laughs> great. Yeah. I've met a couple people that do stand up through the improv, but like you said, there does not seem to be all that much overlap. Yeah. yeah. And, and I got into it to get over my fear of standing in front of people and speaking. I couldn't have done this interview to mm. you. I would have been, I would have been out of my mind, like yeah. nervous, thinking somewhere else. I would have wanted to be taking some blood pressure. Yep. Medicine, uh, yep. 
Yeah, my, uh, a class I'm teaching this semester, uh, my co-instructor and I tried something new a couple of weeks ago where we wanted to, so it's a, it's a methods class. This is related to what we were saying, I swear. Uh, it's a methods class, so it's very much like, well, what is the mean? What is the standard deviation? What's a regression? All this kind of stuff. And I was like, what if we do something new this semester and do like data science out in the wild kind of current events, like lectures every now and again. It's basically like you think about COVID-19 and coronavirus, there's like all this data and people are talking about data and data science in a way that we never have before. And so I was like, what if we do something like totally unorthodox and talk about the news through data science lens and this and that. And he was like, okay. He was like, but what if we end up only having like a half hour of material and we can't get a discussion going and we still have to fill the full 75 minutes. And I was like, do not worry about that. So I was like, if we are stuck, I will fill that time. Uh, and I did, and it was all to do with improv. That was a very long way of saying like, it very recently came in handy. Nice. Like, what else can we say about coronavirus? Plenty, it turns out. <laughs> yes, improv comes in handy. It's come in handy in so many aspects of my life. I, yeah. I highly recommend it to anyone out there. Seconded, like, yes. Do it. It's fun, it's, yeah. it's just fun. And you have the most supportive group of people yes. that you're with, because you're all yes. in the same boat. And you're all there to help each other out. I think doing it for three years, I think I met like one person I maybe didn't like. Right. Everyone's, everyone's, you got to be nice to be doing it. So. Right. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this. Well, thank you. My pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you. Where can they check out your podcast? Ah, yes. So uh, let's see. So if you go to jonesroy.com, which is my website, there's a, a page for um, Ask a Political Scientist. And that'll take you. You can also just Google Ask a Political Scientist to show up on YouTube. Um, we have an event right that that explains our, our series runs through now and the election um, and you can watch it live on YouTube or you can find like the audio version, you know, on iTunes or Apple or whatever, everything else. Okay. Um, yeah. Or if you follow me on Twitter at Jonesroy, uh, I'm constantly talking about it. So that'll get you there too. Nice. All right. Yeah. Well, this has been Second Scene with Michael. Thank you, Andrea. It has been a crazy ride. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, check you. out Andrea Jones Roy at jonesroy.com. That's jonesroy.com uh, for her Ask a Political Scientist podcast and to see where she's going to be performing once we can get out of COVID. Um, if, yes. uh, if you want any more no-nonsense advice or free one-on-one -on -one mentorship at any area, uh, in any area, can, including resume writing or mental health, send us a contact request at dweebsglobal.org and we'll pair you with a mentor. And please tune in next Tuesday where we'll be doing another interview with somebody very interesting and fun. So, thank you. Hey.